in London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Silicon Real. Okay, um, thanks so much for coming today to the Eventbrite space. Uh, my name is Brian Rose. I host London Real, uh, where our mission is putting the BBC out of business. Uh, every, uh, every week we introduce kind of extraordinary people and we introduce you uh, to them online. Uh, we've had guests like uh, celebrity astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who tried to wrestle me to the ground. Uh, we had Tim Ferriss doing the four-hour everything, and uh, we've also had the uh, marijuana smuggler, uh, Howard Marks. So, uh, that's what I do. There you go. You know him. And so uh, I do that in my spare time. Um, I also shoot a show called Silicon Reel, uh, which is the uh, weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. And uh, it's right around the corner. Uh, I was actually uh, uh, lucky enough we had uh, Mr. Mike Butcher from TechCrunch on last week. Uh, we just had someone from Index Partners on. And we've got Uber on uh, tomorrow. Uh, we're streaming live. Sorry, there's no tickets. Sorry, Eventbrite. Um, it's free, uh, but you, uh, you can watch that, and we're going to be grilling them about all the fun things that they do. So uh, uh, I was lucky enough um, to have uh, the CEO of Eventbrite, Kevin Hartz, on my show about three months ago. He's a really fascinating guy, really introspective guy. And when I asked him the question I'm going to ask Lauren at the end of this, uh, the advice he would give to his 20-year-old self, um, he said, uh, take some risks, uh, make an impact on the world, and do something really incredible. And uh, then he went on to say that he thought he was a late bloomer and he was getting really frustrated with himself. And he said, I, I didn't start my first company until I was 25. <laughs> and uh, he's like, I didn't pull a Zuckerberg. So uh, I thought that was really funny. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great having him on. So uh, thanks to Eventbrite and the space, <clears throat> you're making Old Street a little more beautiful. I don't know if you're familiar with this area or if you are, but about a year ago, this would not have happened here. So uh, it's kind of uh, making this whole space the whole space great so um, let me introduce you to my guest uh, this is Laurent Sellier who is the uh, recently appointed uh, VP of products at Eventbrite uh, which is the world's leading, uh, leading self-service ticketing platform uh, last year uh, Eventbrite uh, processed over 1 billion dollars in gross ticket sales over 1 million events uh, you, uh, you're experiencing double digit growth um, and uh, you've raised uh, over 200 million dollars in VC uh, Lauren was the director at Twitter and product management for two years, and before that he was at Amazon working on the Kindle product uh, for seven years. So uh, fresh from Silicon Valley, uh, Lauren, welcome to Silicon Reel at Eventbrite. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for being here. Um, I always wonder when people come uh, to London, especially in tech, when you're on the plane and you're like, I'm about to fly to London, what are you thinking? What are you thinking about this city, about the people, about the UK? I, I mean, England, in particular London, is a unique place to, in my heart because I, um, when I moved to the U.S. 15 years ago, I actually had to wait for my visa, and I waited in London for about six months. <laughs> um, so I, I did get to, to work here and, and work in the tech community. I, um, I mean, we're really proud at Eventbrite to be part of this community here, and I think it's a thriving area, a thriving space for, for technology in general, so... Uh, and, and London is just a wonderful city. It's a city with a lot of energy, and um, I love the English sense of humor as well. So it's just you exciting did. to be here. Yeah. 
And when you mention the words London and tech, when you're in Silicon Valley, what do people say to you? What do people say? I think it's, it's, um, it's a place that I think aspire to become another area of thriving you know, startups, um, a thriving ecosystem. I think it's, we're gonna, you guys are going to get there. I think um, there's all the ingredients to be doing things like what we do in the Silicon Valley. I think it's, a, um, it's, it's, just, uh, it's just a happening place in technology. We, we have a great office here. Uh, all the jobs that I've had in the past, we've, we've had really uh, great engineers and, and designers and, and uh, talents in, in London. So uh, London to me is just an extension of the Silicon Valley in many ways. And how does it feel? Does it feel, say, like the Silicon Valley did 10 years ago or if you ever went to New York like five years ago? Because I feel this real kind of sense of there's something really building. I mean, even the roundabout and all the tech places here. I mean, does it have a certain kind of a buzz or feel to it? It's different than when you were getting your visa. Oh, completely. No, I agree with that. Yeah, I think it's uh, technology is a, is, a key, is a key ingredient in the city at this point. Beyond finance and all the traditional industries, I think tech is, is happening here. It's exciting to see. So why make the move from Twitter to Eventbrite? And uh, what are your plans you know, for the future on this product? I think we... We have an incredible opportunity to build something that nobody else has done, which is this marketplace for live experiences. And um, that was a challenge that I was very excited about when I, when I heard about it when I was being interviewed. And I, um, what, what drives me in, in my career at this point is the ability to innovate in a space that, you know, like ours, where I think innovation is going to happen. Um, it's going to happen around how you find and discover events. It's going to happen about, around when you're at the event itself, the type of experience that uh, technology allows. I think it's just uh, a, a, a space that, where innovation is going to be skyrocketing over the next few years, and I wanted to be part of that. Um, and uh, the, the team that I talked to when I was interviewing was of really high caliber, so all the ingredients were there for me to be uh, excited to join the company. And mobile is going to be a big piece going forward. I mean, when people say that, it always seems obvious, but I guess it's not obvious to some companies. I mean, mobile is, is, a, is a big part of our business today, and it's the fastest growing part of our business. I think we have this incredible um, device in our pocket, these days, whether it's an iPhone or an Android device, that knows about where you are, that knows about uh, you know, who your friends are, and uh, that knows about your tastes. And carrying, the, carrying that device around um, you know, is, is, is very powerful. And for us to be able to leverage that platform to tell you about cool things to do over the weekend, cool things to do when you're traveling, uh, it's, the sky is the limit in terms of what we can do. And your, uh, your new product that's coming out, the idea is that you can kind of empower the people running the event and the consumers in order to use that yeah, to we kind just of run the event. Right? We just launched Neon, so it's uh, our new app. Is that why we have the neon signs here? Exactly. Okay. I got it. So it's all organized. Figured it out. <laughs> it's all figured out. Um, so Neon is our is our app for event organizers. It's um, it's focused on enabling organizers to uh, you know check in people at the door when they come to an event to sell them tickets, but also to track uh, their sales. So it's actually a very addictive product for uh, all the customers that use it. I mean, we, we got a lot of feedback since we launched it a few weeks ago. People use it every day before the event starts because they can see how they're doing in their sales. And, you know, they might do a little bit more marketing to get more people to attend. And then, you know, at the door, they can have multiple 
doors staffed with the, the neon products. So it's usually working on an iPhone or an iPad. And you can see your sales evolving or the check-ins evolving over time. It's, it's just a really cool new way to do um, basically things that uh, uh, an organizer, a venue uh, organizer would be wanting to do. It used to be kind of stuck in the old world. Now we've brought it to the mobile world. And it's, it's exciting for the, uh, for the customers using it. Okay. Talk about the UK. I mean, I, my show is called London Real. We're in London, but I think 71% of your sales are in the greater UK. So it's not really about the urban centers all the time, is it? That is, um, today we are definitely, um, I mean, London's a big business for us. I mean, so it's, it's actually our third largest city in terms of uh, places where we sell tickets. Uh, but you're right, most of the tickets in the, in the UK are outside of London. Um, we think there's unique opportunities outside of London. There's a, a, a lot of relevant and big cities, um, and, but London is, is a fast-growing market for us as well. You know, you're a, you're a product guy, a guy that really specializes in the product experience, and we had a guest on, his name is Debu Perkasawa, um, I don't think I'm killing his name there, and he, he worked for, uh, for Google for six years, a new business in corporate development, he's now uh, the entrepreneur in residence at Octopus, and he said that in San Francisco, they have very specialized product guys like this one, I probably you spent 10 years working on developing products, and here we don't have that depth of experience. And I was wondering if you could tell us what makes a product person or experience as opposed to what I might just think of as a tech person or a, a programmer. What makes someone who can actually yeah, specialize in a product? That's actually a, a good question because I, um, uh, at Eventbrite, we have a, a lot of people joining the company every week, and, and every month I actually present to the company around what is product management. Uh, to the new hires, because most people don't actually really understand what the concept of product management is. Arguably, it's a yeah, I don't. it's a foreign concept to a lot of people. But um, and it used, I mean, it started in the Silicon Valley, and that's probably why it's you know very um, uh, prevalent in that region. But the concept is, uh, it's a person in the organization or a group of people that are going to be in charge of representing the voice of the customer. So for us, it's going to be organizers or attendees. But when you, we're going to be working closely with engineering, with design, uh, with all the different functions in the organization to make sure we build the right product for the right uh, audience. Um, often you have to make some trade-offs between you know, going down a path that might be easier to do from a technical standpoint, um, but that's not going to lead to the same great customer experience. Or you might take more time, but, and it's going to be a better customer experience, but it's going to take more time. So we help kind of find the right trade-off in the organization. Um, we, you asked me what type of people make good product uh, managers. In general, it's uh, people that are curious, that never stop to learn, that, uh, that are technical in the way they can actually discuss with an engineer or designer, uh, be part of a technical conversation and understand what's happening. It's going to be somebody who um, is going to learn a lot about the world, the technology world that surrounds them so that they can actually bring new trends into the conversation and say, hey, have we seen this technology? Should we embrace it and, and go after it? Um, and it's somebody that's analytical. You cannot do that job if you don't know how to manage uh, a lot of data and make decisions based on data. Do you have to be obsessed with the customer experience and customer feedback? Um, I think, I mean, I don't know if you need to be obsessed. I think you need to, it's, it's another, uh, so creating a great customer experience is, is you know, it's a, it's a it's a lengthy process and it's a work of art, but it's um, y you have to balance, you know, different uh, things. You have to balance schedule and quality of the product and 
technical uh, feasibility. And, and so, yeah, it's being able to find the right trade-off and to build the right experience, but not spend five years on something you could have done 95% as well uh, in six months. That's usually the, the complexity of the exercise. So the iPhone 6 just came out, and I'm still waiting for mine. Uh, I won't mention the carrier. Um, but, you know, Apple has a very distinct way that they develop products. And, say, Google has a very, uh, maybe not opposite way, but a very different way. And I was wondering if you could tell me about those, those states. I mean, Jobs famously said, I don't ask the customer what they want. I tell them what they want. Is that the way you think as well? So um, it's actually interesting you ask. I, I actually teach a class at, at USF. It's a school at, uh, in San Francisco, okay. it's a university, um, around building products. And um, I've actually been lucky enough to, in my career to be exposed to kind of the two, two ways you just described. There's kind of the Apple way. Apple started with this concept of building products by thinking long-term. Like, you know, if you build an iPhone, you kind of need to think about it almost two years before. Like, what will a customer want two years from now? Um, and and at Amazon, we embraced a lot of that approach as well, which was kind of the working backwards process. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but the idea is when you start working on a product, you write the press release first. So you actually think about what customers are going to be exposed to two years from now, and then you try to work to that vision. You often kind of, yeah, I think you can get to 95% of it if you do your homework well at the beginning. So that's kind of what I would describe as the Apple way of doing things. Then, then Google and places like Twitter, where I was exposed to that, and Facebook. Um, and, and, and a lot of what we do at Eventbrite is about um, quick iteration on, a, on improving the product. So you're going to say, you know, I want to make the sign-up process easier for customers to, to be able to sign up uh, faster. So you're going to try different approaches. You're going to A-B test those approaches. You're going, to, you're going to measure which ones work better. You usually measure on a percentage of your, of your users. You don't do that on all of the users, so you have some control and some uh, tests. And then at the end, you see what approach works better, and then you ship it to everybody. And those can be done in a very quick two-week, three-week type of sprint, and you can get to iterate really fast on your product. So that's more of the Google approach. Like your search page on Google, they do that every day. They run dozens of experiments on that page. They move things around, they add some specific features for you to, to, to see if you're interested in them, and then they'll ship the ones that, that work well. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, these are two very, very different approaches that arguably require two different types of, uh, of, uh, of brains to work on that. Which one are you? I, I, you know, I've, I've learned to be proficient in both. So, I mean, it's, it's been something that, um, yeah, I've, 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 I've learned how to, to do both. And I think for our business at Eventbrite, we need both, actually, because there are areas where we have an established business. So the organizer side is, um, you know, has been very successful. We, we, last year, we ticketed a billion dollars you know, of tickets. Uh, organizers have very positive feedback on what we do, and we, I think we can do better. So we're going to continue iterating in a quick way to see what works better for our uh, audience. And then there's areas where we have to be breaking new grounds. I think on the mobile side, um, what you, the app you have in your pocket, I think we have opportunities to do things that are very uh, disruptive. And, and those, we're going to launch them and, and you know, dream new, uh, new, new experiences and launch them and, and see how they do. But I don't think we're going to be A-B test our way into it. Talking about social, I read that someone was three times as likely to buy a ticket if they saw their friend buying the ticket. And um, how do you incorporate that into the Eventbrite platform? So on Eventbrite, you can um, sign up um, to, to Facebook, so you can actually 
um, at that point when you've done that, I mean, it's a one-click action. You can see what your friends are going to be attending. So it's a very powerful um, feature that uh, you're, you're in, in the home page. You just, you know, you know, you just clicked on Eventbrite, uh, and you can see what, what events your friends are going to go to. You can also do that when you run a search query. You can uh, see that on your mobile app. It's just been um, extremely successful for us. And, and you're right, because events at the end of the day are a social experience. You, you, know, you, you probably will have more fun going to a concert with a friend than if you go alone. It's been incredibly successful for us. It's strange. I was talking with the, your CEO, Kevin, and in this world where we're all connected online, we still all want to get together, which is what Eventbrite's all about, right? People still want to touch each other and see each other and yeah, have shared mean, experiences, right? We, we, we have this belief uh, that, uh, and, and I think a lot of uh, data these days proves that, that people need human interactions. Just being in front of your computer or your phone all day long is not fulfilling as a human being, and no. being able to go to concerts or cooking classes or, or an event like this with you know, all the great people attending today just prove that you need those type of human interactions and that's part of our DNA. Your, uh, your audience is really big in the US right now. How, how is it different when you try to roll out in Europe and roll out in different languages and, and different countries and then go even further into Asia? Is it something that's very complicated or very important for Eventbrite? So, so the US is about 80% um, of our business today. Uh, England is actually a big part of our business as well. Um, and we, especially given from where I come from, I have a specific, you know, unique sensitivity to making sure we build products that work for a global audience. Um, we, we generally ship features that are international by nature. They are localized in, uh, I think, 17 different languages. They, um, they, 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 they work for a large part of the world. Um, I think we've sold tickets in 187 countries uh, so far. Uh, we're actually pretty hot in Southeast Asia. I was there um, earlier this year, and, and Eventbrite was actually pretty popular, in particular in the tech community. A lot of people were using that to organize events like this. We, um, so we, we try to roll out uh, internationally as quickly as possible. Hopefully on, on the day anything launches. Otherwise, it just comes a few weeks after. But for example, we just launched... Neon in the U.S. Um, three weeks ago, I believe, and uh, we're launching it in the U.K. Uh, any day now. It's in the matter of it's, it depends on Apple pushing the right buttons to authorize the app at this point. Right. If anyone here is listening and they want to develop a product, which is pretty much everyone these days, mm -hmm. and maybe you cover this at your class in San Francisco, but is there a few few tips of advice that you can give people? Even three things to think about how they design their product. And if they didn't do that, then they might design something that's completely useless. Are there some basics? I think I would, uh, the first thing I would do is, mobile is so preval prevalent these days that I would build the product to be mobile first. So uh, it doesn't mean that a website is not important. For example, for our business, the web is actually critical to our success. But you need to make sure that the features you conceive work well on mobile. And then you, you bring them to the web. In the past, it, you used to do the other way around. You used to build for the web and then you know, try to squeeze it to make it fit in the mobile, on the mobile screen. I think you need to do the, 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 the other way around these days. Um, but that's more, uh, you know, a tactical detail. In terms of, you know, building a product that can succeed, I think you want to think of um, ideas, uh, think of problems people have in their lives. That's usually the way I start thinking about products is, 
um, analyze a market, understand what are the pain points people have in that market. I mean, uh, you mentioned Uber a few minutes ago. They, you know, they did a good job at identifying it's really hard to get a cab in Paris. I think the idea actually started there. Like, what can we do? And, and start and identify those pain points and build a product around that. Build a very simple user experience. I do think that if it takes people five clicks to do something, they usually don't don't go that far. So, a really simple experience, mobile first, solving you know very clear problems for for mankind. That's that's the way we'd start. Are there companies that impress you? Is Facebook kind of a gold standard in the in the valley, or or anyone else as far as that kind of iterative user experience of designing better products? <laughs> I, I mean, the, the the funny thing about um, the approach of iterating quickly is that for a lot of people, it's actually transparent. You you unless you're working there, you don't necessarily know that those uh, iterations are happening, um, and uh, I think there's. Quite a few companies that, that do a good job at that. One of them that I uh, think has been very good at it is um, uh, Instagram. I think they do a good job at uh, being true to a very simple and powerful product, uh, yet they do iterate in the background on, on making the product a little bit uh, more uh, easier to use or with new capabilities. That's one thing that I think they've done well. Um, I think we're doing really well as well. Uh, as a company, we have a really strong engineering team um, that builds really uh, great features, and we try to roll them out fast and uh, in an iterative fashion, as I mentioned to you, and also sometimes in just we launch them when we think they are the right thing to do. I have to ask the question everyone wants to know. What's a Frenchman doing in San Francisco? How did you get there? How did I get there? Um, that is a good question. <laughs> I... So I'm from, from France. You said that. Um, I... Whereabouts? Paris. I was okay. born uh, and raised in Paris. Lived there for 25 years, something like that, uh, 23. Um, and then, uh, so I studied, I'm an engineer by training, and I went to business school as well. And as part of my engineering uh, training, I was able to live in Los Angeles for one year. I had a one-year exchange program with uh, UCLA. Okay. So I discovered the, uh, the web uh, during that time. It was 95. I remember it uh, really well. I was... Uh, living with a roommate at that point, and I, uh, I walked into his room one day. He was he had just installed this brand new computer. I mean, '95 computers were gigantic, if you remember that. And yeah. No flat screens. No flat screens. And he was like, "Hey, look at this. This is pretty cool." And he showed me that was the first time I saw the web. Like you know, '95. Right. It was the beginning of it. Actually, I think Netscape celebrated the. 20th anniversary of uh, the browser two days ago. So, right, okay. You know, so, right. so it would have been a Netscape browser you were on. It was probably. a Netscape browser, and he showed me this page from the Disney website, and it was actually playing little videos, and I just thought it was the most in- interesting thing I had ever seen, and I thought there was something very powerful with it. And I, um, I think that day I just thought there could be something to do career-wise in that space. Moved back to France after spending a year there, uh, a year in L.A., um, Got an internship when I was in business school with an internet service provider, and then uh, I got hired out of uh, for a French company that shipped me back to Menlo Park. I kind of wanted to go back to California. I enjoyed the the weather and the just the energy, and also, I mean, in technology, I just thought California was probably a good place for that. And so, yeah, I moved there 16 years ago, and um, I li- I've lived in San Francisco the whole time. You ever tempted to go back to Paris? I go back for. F- you know, family reasons. I'm actually going back next uh, this weekend. My grandfather's turning 100, so we're having we're having a little uh, a little uh, party for that. Um, but um, 
Yeah, I, I usually go back a couple of times a year. And when the kids are going to get older, we'll go more often. But I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old, so it takes a, it's a big production to go anywhere. And that must have been a complete like mind frame change going from Paris to San Francisco, especially in the tech industry at that time. I mean, did, did it just feel like think people were thinking differently, or was it just kind of an exciting time when things were changing? Well, there's a lot of... Uh, San Francisco is probably one of the most European cities in, in, in the States. It's a... Uh, it's not very big. It's um, it's 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 actually um, very approachable. It's not like Los Angeles where you have to drive everywhere. You can actually walk places. It's on a hill, but other than that, it's pretty walkable. Steep hills, Steep hills. M- multiple hills. Um, I just like the open-mindedness of Americans. Like you can come and within an hour, they or within two minutes, they, you, you feel at home. Like you, you don't, you know, there's no. Barrier. It's it's people are very friendly, very open-minded. Um, I think the willingness to try new things and and willingness to accept change is also something that's very unique to uh, to California. I mean, it's such a, fra- a fresh and new place that I think that that goes with the territory. But I, I, that's probably one of the reasons technology, the technology industry, has been so successful there. Is that you know you got to be willing to break things and and try new things, and and people are just okay with that. Uh, in that part of the world. Let's talk about uh, the future of Eventbrite. Competition, uh, Ticketmaster, big organizations like that that have been along, around for a long time that don't necessarily have the tech plays that you have. When you think about products, and I guess it does come down to you because you're thinking about for five years out, what do you think about when it comes to competing kind of like these big established ticket companies? I mean, on our, on our side, we have um, really three priorities. Our first priority is to uh, build that live event marketplace that nobody arguably has built so far, where you can, on your phone or your desktop, find compelling things to do in your uh, real life. Um, I, I think we're really well positioned to, to be um, the leader in that space, and, and we're, we're moving in that direction. Our second priority is to make sure that we continue serving our existing customers, so we have... Um, thousands, uh, tens of thousands of organizers that use our platform, and we want to continue serving their needs and uh, innovate for them. The third priority is, is very dear to my heart. It's we want to uh, use our mobile apps. So that we have two. We have the Eventbrite app and Neon. But on the consumer side, Eventbrite, um, our app, is, is we want to use that as our showcase of innovation. We have, I think... Uh, on mobile platforms, unique op- opportunities to build things that you could not do on the desktop. I mean, your phone knows about your location, it knows about uh, your address book, it knows about your tastes, and uh, we want to leverage that to be creating uh, disruptive experiences. So these are our three priorities. To be honest with you, I don't wake up every morning thinking about the competition. I actually uh, think about what can we do for our users, what can we do for uh, the organizers. Um, we listen to them very carefully. We actually have um, a very simple process internally where every eight weeks we have different teams in the organization share their findings um, with the different people they talk to. So our customer support team will come back to us saying, hey, these are the top issues we've heard about over the last eight weeks. The sales team will do the same, the marketing team. And we, get, we gather all that input and form basically a roadmap of what we want to build. But, but competition is not something we, we focus on too much. So there's a class at Stanford right now that they're broadcasting on podcast form. It's called How to Start a Startup. I don't know if you heard about this. And, mm-hmm. uh, Peter Thiel, who created PayPal and, and now uh, runs Palantir, 
he has a, a class he calls uh, competition is for losers. And uh, he's uh, reminded me of what Lauren was saying. And he says that you should be going for a monopoly when you're designing a product and you should go to just completely own the space. And if you're competing with someone else, then you're changing all your priorities. And I was wondering if you agree with Peter in those statements. No, I, I mean, I, maybe I wouldn't be as bold as, as he is uh, statement-wise, but, but I do agree. You, you want to focus on serving the customer needs and, and not on being distracted by what other competitors are doing. I think it's already a full-time job to be, you know, your eyes on the ball, building great things, and, and yeah, competition is not uh, our top priority. Uh, what was it like uh, at Amazon for seven years? I'm always curious. I was reading two books right now. One's called In the Plex about Google. Great book, and you kind of figure out how they started. And then one was The Everything Store, and it sounds like a very intense place to work in Amazon. It sounds like you constantly have to prove your worth every month. To be, to be honest with you, I, I, read the, I read those books as well, okay. and I did not um, recognize the company that I, that I worked for in, 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 the, in the latter book. Like, okay. I, I think he's, okay. he's taken a more dramatic you know, approach to describing the company. I was there, uh, I, was there um, I started in 2000, and, when was that, 2005. I was there for seven and a half years. I was actually hired um, not knowing what I was going to work on. I, I um, got hired through a friend of a friend. It's always like that. You find jobs in, in the Silicon Valley, I, I find. Um, and he was like, yeah, we're going to build this thing. It's going to be really great, but I can't tell you what it is. And, and I still took the job. And I, um, after day one, uh, they told me that I was going to be working on Kindle. And I was basically employee number 12. Like there were 10 engineers my boss who ran a product and myself. And I was in charge of thinking about the services side of Kindle. Services meaning like, what can I do when I have a network connection on a little device to buy books? So I was in charge of the store, of the periodicals experience. I spent actually a lot of time in London getting um, uh, newspaper providers and, and magazines to be part of the platform when we launched. But so I was... Um, it was a small team. It was a team of 12. We eventually grew to about 100 when we shipped the first device. But it was never a really big, uh, really big team for many years. Did the iPad exist yet? The iPad did not exist. Did not exist. We were wow. the first device on which you could buy something uh, wirelessly. Like, nobody had done that before. Okay. Um, we, uh, you know, it was a, an, incredible, an incredible place to work. Uh, working with Jeff Bezos is, is better than business school. Can I mean, you do his laugh? I can't do that. Is laugh. it really like? Is it maniacal? Is it? Is is I mean, he's a really bright person. I, I learned a lot from him. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to spend quite a lot of time uh, around him. I mean, he's very passionate about Kindle for good reasons, um, and uh, we had really good um, discussions around the product. And, and he was very um, instrumental in making in making it what it is today. So. Seven years, uh, uh, seven and a half years spent there. I would. It's a long time. I would. I would not give away. I mean, I, I, you know, I think they were incredible years. Like uh, some of the best times in my life. So I really enjoyed it, and I never saw any of the stuff that was described in the book. What, what was your biggest takeaway from working on the Kindle for that amount of time, from a product standpoint? What do you think you learned the most? That's a good question. I think the, my biggest learning has been um, that you have to trust people around you, uh, especially you know, uh, the technical team 
if you want to make big bets, if you want to take, take big steps, as I mentioned earlier, you have to think two years in advance often for those products. You have to close your eyes and believe it's going to work out. Because often we were building breakthrough, techno breakthrough technologies, like uh, the paper white technology. I don't know if you have a Kindle paper white, I've seen one, but the one with the light that shines from behind. We, you know, two years before, we dreamed that it was possible. We had engineers work on it. Um, and uh, there's times where we're like, oh, we're never going to cross the finish line. It's not going to ship. But, uh, you know, good engineers get, get, you know, can pull magic, and, and they did. So, yeah, trust, trust your surrounding. Trust your team that they can do uh, amazing things, and it's going to be all right. Do you miss working with hardware? Are you glad that's over? We actually do a little bit of hardware at the... Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah, because we have um, a little dongle you can use to, to buy things, and, and uh, we're, we're looking at all the things. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a tiny piece of our business right now. But And just finishing off with your CV. Uh, and by the way, to, to yeah. answer your question, what I miss about it, it's very different to build software and hardware. Hardware, you actually can dream of something, work with the, you know, the design team, and within a few days, you can actually hold the product in your hand. It's not a working product, but it's a product that looks like what you're going to be building, that has the same fit and finish. And so it's this really bizarre experience where you can have a conversation on Monday and on Thursday, hold a prototype of that in your hand. Again, it's not f working, but it looks like what it's going to be at the end. Whereas software, you kind of need to discuss, dream it, then you're going to see, you know, uh, a, a document that describes what you want to do, then it's going to be some you know, mocks, and, but it's going to take a while for the software to be working. And so it's, it's just a different type of time horizons in terms of when you can interact with the, the product. Uh, obviously, hardware takes, as I said, you know, between nine, to two, nine months to two years to build, but again, you get, you get to feel it really quickly in the process. Just finishing your CV out, uh, I have to ask you about Twitter. You were there for two years. Um, what, what kind of did you do there, and, and uh, what did you learn from that company? I uh, was hired initially to run the mobile uh, team, mobile product management team. So we were in charge of the uh, iPhone and, uh, and uh, Android app and a few other things. Um, and then towards the end, I worked on our emerging market strategy, so how to make Twitter be even more successful in places like Brazil and India and Indonesia and Philippines. I mean, like non-smartphone or just low, low a lot of A lot of the, those, those markets now have a pretty high penetration of smartphones. You, you yeah. can actually buy, I was in um, Jakarta uh, and in Manila in, in middle of the year this year before I joined Eventbrite. And you can buy a pretty good Android phone for $70. Like it's, it's, I mean, that's a lot of money for a lot of people, but it's uh, about the same price point as, as a lot of feature phones, you know, the phones that don't do a lot. So people tend to buy those Android phones instead. Um, and uh, so you asked me what I, what I learned at Twitter. Yeah. I actually learned a lot about this um, quick iteration process, uh, how to build features really quickly, you know, test them on a small percentage of your users and look at data and basically ship the, the, the variant that you created that works the best. Um, I learned a lot about the social space, obviously. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, the, the caliber of, of people at, at Twitter, the caliber of employees that work there is just really high, and um, I learned from all of them every day I was there. It was just a great experience. 
So I was looking through his uh, LinkedIn profile, and like most people, they have the jobs, and then they have the university, and then at the bottom of Lauren's uh, LinkedIn profile are his six patents. So I was like, I was like, what the hell? Um, could you tell us how you have patents and how you have so many patents? And can I get some patents? Sure. Um, I actually have a funny story around that. So my wife. Um, it works for the legal department uh, at Adobe. So Adobe, you know the software company yeah. that does um, Photoshop yeah. and so many other things. And I used to work, uh, so we met when uh, the company was called Micromedia. Actually, Micromedia was bought by Adobe. Micromedia used to do Flash and yeah, Dreamweaver. Yeah, yeah. That brings us back really far. <laughs> you, were, you were this tall at that point. Um, and sh- so uh, this, the funny story is that there's still patents that I filed when I was at Micromedia that are basically getting granted at this point. Filing patents in, in the Silicon Valley for any tech company you work at is kind of part of the, the daily habits. Like you grab coffee in the morning and then you work with your team and then at some point you're going to bump your into nose and then you yeah, file a patent. You're going to have a meeting with a lawyer that's going to be like, okay, what patents are we going to file this week? Okay. Because it's actually you know, important to build a portfolio to among all the reasons to be able to protect yourself against uh, other companies that might be suing you for many reasons. Um, right, Jeff Bezos patented one click. For instance. For a while. Uh, I, I have a few patents at, at Amazon that are okay. pretty good. But yeah, that, that's part of, the, it's part of the cycle. You, I mean, I, I wouldn't say you do that every day, but you do that on a regular basis. Maybe once a quarter, you sit down with lawyers and look at all the stuff that you're working on and what could be patented out of that. Um, not all of them, you know, get to be granted, but uh, you can often apply to to patents. Uh, I mean, it's not very expensive, and it's it's just the right thing to do in a tech company. So I think I have six. I actually don't really know if I have six or three or five, but um, uh, my wife was adamant about me putting them on the website because she spent a lot of time. Uh, she gave me those little plaques, you know, you can put in your office, which I don't have because I find them tacky. But she, she was very passionate about giving that to me, so I felt like I, I had to put them, you know, on LinkedIn. That was only fair. I've interviewed two hundred some people, and I've never seen that before. So, okay. it's a first. Um, one question I always ask everyone uh, on Silicon Reel is: uh, I should ask a few questions at the end. I'm going to ask you uh, sure. if you could make a phone call to the 20-year-old uh, Laurent Cellier and give that young man a bit of advice. What would you tell him? Where was he, and what would you tell him? So, I think there's two. Um Two things. I mean, I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old, so it's not the conversation I have with them yet, but I think I will have it at some point. I think you want to follow your passions. Uh, I mean, I, that's, that's a pretty vanilla statement, but I think it's important to work on things that you're passionate about because you're going to do it every day. You're going to you know, spend you know, 10 to 12 hours every day working on it, and it's, it's so much easier if you work on something you're passionate about. And I was lucky enough, as I mentioned to you, in 95 to discover what the web was, and it's been a passion ever since. Like I, I, I wake up every morning, I'm excited about going to work, I'm excited about working with what I'm working on. Uh, I think technology is just a wonderful space and, and, uh, and applying you know, what I've learned and, 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 and building great things at Eventbrite is, is, is just fun every day. So work on your, you know, think, about your, but think about what you're passionate about and, and work in that field. The second one I would say is I actually would learn how to code. Like I, I know it sounds kind of uh, uh, difficult for a lot of people to, to code, but I think it's going to become 
almost uh, essential for everybody in the future to be able to 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 know how to write code because it, our world is so much about uh, you know technology is so so present everywhere it's 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 in everything we do and I think it's going to be like writing or or, or math like writing code is going to be an essential tool for everybody uh, so I. I I really encourage any young kid or teenager to learn how to code. I mean, it's so much easier when you're 15 to learn that than when you're, you know, old like me right now. So, um, so you wish the 20-year-old would have done both of those. I, I actually you did, did one learn, of them. I right? did learn how to code. I was not. I, I was an engineer for a couple of years. I was not. Um, I, I liked it. I was. I was one of these people that would spend 12 hours straight until they solved the problem. So I could realize it was like three in the morning. I had not eaten or had any water and because I was trying to fix my code. So I, I realized that was maybe not the best job for me and I moved to do product management. But I, uh, I didn't know how to do that at some point. I, I would be hard-pressed to, to use that skill at this point. But yeah, I was, I was reasonably good at that at some point. Second part of that question is, uh, what's the best advice you've ever received? Could be business or personal over the years. Um, I think the best advice I've ever received is, I mean, I think it's realizing I only have one life. It's a bit philosophical by nature, but it's live your life fully because you really, you know, you only have one. And and once you realize that, and you, you know, in your life you have events that remind you of that, whether you've lost somebody that you cared about or... Uh, you got sick. Like, remember to live your life fully and to to enjoy it. And don't do things you wouldn't want to do. Um, you know, if you're in a career that's not exciting or at a job you don't like, go find something else. Like, don't don't get stranded doing something you don't like. You, you would regret it when you know when you get a bit older. So remember that it's, you're only here for a short period of time. It's good advice. Uh, you gave the advice about coding earlier to, to someone that's watching us or listening to us uh, around the world that's not in an urban environment, like they can't go to one of these events. What's the best, the best way that they can get involved in, in technology or get involved you know, in tech startup? Well, they can watch you on, the, on YouTube, you. right? Thank you. That's, Hopefully uh, they are already. <laughs> that's the that's first all you thing. have to do. Um, I mean, there's incredible online training these days, most of it being free. You can, uh, I mean, that did not exist five years ago. You can, uh, I mean, Khan Academy comes to mind, but there's yeah. so many other places. Uh, I have a good friend of mine that works at Google that actually, for one year, uh, you know, he takes the bus, uh, the Silicon Valley bus that goes from San Francisco to Mountain View. And he wanted to learn about robotics, I think. I mean, it was a very interesting topic that he was interested in learning about. And every day on the bus, going there and coming back, he would take the some classes and take some tests. I think the, all those uh, online trainings have some form of diplomas they can give you at the end. And he learned about robotics uh, basically in his spare time, in times where he could not uh, be doing uh, his, his, his normal job. So um, yeah, I think online you have incredible resources and um, you, you get a leverage that. Um, I mean, Harvard and so many other schools have classes online as well. I mean, the, the sky is the limit in terms of finding great material these days. Yeah, they call it meta-learning. I think Tim Ferriss calls that. Like, any time I get an email from someone saying, like, how do I do that, how do I do that, it's just, yeah, you just ask Google and YouTube how you do it, 
and you will, will definitely find a way. That's true. Yeah. Um, that's it. Um, thanks so much for being here. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Um, as we say on Silicon Real, it's about the people. Um, I wish you all the best on your journey. Thanks to Eventbuy for the space. And uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, any questions for, for either one of us? We've got a mic coming around, so if you just raise your hand, uh, you can ask us anything about patents. Yeah. At least one. All right. Where you talked about two things. One is integrating mobile into your thinking, and the second was integrating social into your thinking. And I was wondering in terms of, I was looking at starting up an event business, mixing up a, a range of different platforms. What would be like the first step? Should I, because I was always thinking face-to-face -face and I was thinking about the conventional way, like advertising, creating flyers and word of mouth and so on. So I was thinking like, is it, if I'm thinking social and technology before I'm, shouldn't I be first thinking about the content and the audience before thinking social and technology? It was more about when should it come into my thinking of product development? Well, I mean, I think social, it's actually a very powerful platform for us. We, um, we, people find a lot of events they want to go to by looking at their Twitter feed or their Facebook feed. Um, and, but but you, you need to have compelling stuff for people to do before you present that information. Um, we... we um, so I, I would think social is, is, is a channel for you, but it's, it shouldn't be the first place you start. It should be a channel like, uh, you know, Google search is a channel um, or um, uh, other, other types of vehicles. But, uh, yeah, think about compelling content first. There's also a great article out there called uh, Do Things That Don't Scale. He was actually one of the, the lecturers at the Stanford piece. And the whole idea is that as tech startups, you think everything has to scale. So for me... Like, I could walk out and hand flyers out at Old Street to watch Silicon Reel, or I could try to get on a scalable platform like Twitter and reach 10,000 people. But I think as a founder, it's important to do things that don't scale because you're sitting there and you're actually talking with the people and they're like, I don't want anything to do with your flyer, or they'll answer a question and you'll learn so much about the product and the experience by just targeting a small number of users. So don't all, And it's a cop-out sometimes when you don't want to get out there on the streets. So <laughs> sometimes you need to do things like that you know, too, before you just go to a scalable platform. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm a, a specialist on uh, India and uh, trade with India. I just wondered how Eventbrite was doing in India, which is a market which has kind of leapfrogged the PC and is right into mobile. Uh, and that's a society which is much more stratified and, and less open. And I just wondered, you know, how, how you were doing with the... With with your you know anyone come to an event kind of uh, uh, kind of platform. So I know we have um, organizers using our platform in India. You're right that most people don't have a PC, and uh, you're, you're completely correct in the fact that they've gone mobile um, first. Uh, Android is 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 the prevalent platform over there, and so we have a, an app on Android that actually, as I mentioned earlier, is is really important to us to. Uh, iterate on and, and improve because I think for markets like India or the Philippines or um, a lot of emerging markets we have to provide a compelling experience on mobile and on mobile first uh, that, that would be you know the, the way we address that market right now we don't have 
um, a team in India at this point. We're, uh, we have teams in many parts of the world, and emerging markets is something we're going to be looking at at some point. Right now, we, um, we have a product that, that works well on mobile and works internationally, but the specific Indian needs are not something we're, we're focused on at this point. I think we'll get to it soon, though. I've got a question. I wonder if, if I can take a selfie here with all of you in the background. Is that all right? Is that a question? Is that kind of like Academy Awards kind of over? You want me to take it? No, no, no. It's going to be you and me. Oh. Right? Okay. Right? Hold on. Hold on. There we go. You misfired. Okay. Ready? How's that? Okay. Smile or something. Okay. How's that? <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thanks for Thank coming. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. We'll be around here. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Once you're in a buyout industry, the, the key skill you need to have is being very, very, very good at spreadsheets to analyze the target company in as much detail as possible. Usually when we first invest in a company, you're right, we, we own 20% and often the founders are left with 80%. Generally, we still want those companies to be run and managed by the founders. The three biggest trends around where most of the value in the tech industry have been created the last 10, 15 years, probably I would say mobile, social and cloud.